Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I'll explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. President Putin says Russian gas must be paid for in rubles starting tomorrow. He said this today and signed a decree saying foreign buyers must pay in rubles for Russian gas starting April 1 and contracts would be halted if these payments aren't made. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. Quote, in order to purchase Russian natural gas, they must open ruble accounts in Russian banks. It is from these accounts that payments will be made for gas delivered starting tomorrow, April 1. Dr. Tahid, there are those that see this as acts of a desperate man. There are others that see this as an incredibly adept move by a very strategic, calculating businessman. Your thoughts, Dr. Linwood Tahid. Well, there, there may be a combination of both things, uh, desperation and, and uh, cunning as well. Um, but, but the move is, is not insignificant. It's not like he's flailing his arms and, and, and uh, just threatening to do things. I mean, to, for, for, to put contracts in rubles for gas is a significant um, a way of, of, of getting around the sanctions that have been put on, on, on Russia by uh, the EU and, and the U.S., uh, particularly since the EU is very, very dependent on Russian gas. And even though there are a couple of leaders of countries that have said oh, they're not going to pay, well, when, when those contracts are, when, when those uh, gas shipments are, are, are discontinued because of non-payment, I, I think the population in those countries, like Italy and so forth, will will um, uh, turn turn those lead, that leadership in a different direction, and so I so I think Putin has has made a a very strategic move in order to 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 break these sanctions, and I don't I don't know that the Europeans are going to be able to do anything other than than comply. They have to find rubles if they're going to get gas, and 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 remember this is this is only on gas. This is not on oil. This is not on on fertilizer. This is not on wheat. This is not on other um, uh, commodities that that Russia uh, supplies to the world. And so uh, Putin has has plenty of leeway, plenty of leverage, and uh, to extend this process into other areas. And so I think it is a, a, a shrewd move. It, it may be out of desperation, but, but it was uh, well thought out. In fact, to your point, the, the fact that it's only on natural gas is an indication of how surgical the, uh, he is being because this forces the hand of European Union natural gas recipients, and it puts a—there's pol- a huge— political dynamic 
at play here, as we have been talking about on this show for weeks, we're talking about parliamentary systems that are that are subject to public opinion and they can be pushed to change through a vote of no confidence at the drop of a hat. And so as the business sector, particularly in Germany, is pushing Schultz to say, hey, man, we got to start shutting down factories because we don't have the gas to run them. We, that means that people are going to be put off of work and people can't heat their homes. Man, that gets to the pocket really quickly. And and the reaction to this is 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 very decisive as well. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, the U.S. has um, um, attempted to to ameliorate, or at least uh, to jawbone ameliorate some of these uh, sanctions by by saying that they'll they'll provide gas to Germany and to to the EU. However, those 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 uh, mechanisms of distribution are not there, and uh, they'll they'll be hard to come by. Uh, they have to be. Uh, created that takes time. In addition, for the U.S. to supply gas to Europe means that U.S. doesn't supply gas to the U.S. And uh, you know, there's no in, in, additional supply that's going to come, and so there will be a supply shortage of gas in the U.S. as well as as in Europe. Uh, we'll find those prices going up, and for uh, uh, the economy to suffer in both areas as a result of this. Um, I, I, I think I think this is a, uh, certainly a, a move to break the sanctions. Uh, those who are going to buy gas, those unfriendly countries that are going to buy gas from from Russia, have to find uh, rubles in order to do it. That also helps the the ruble because it, it creates a demand for the ruble, which increases the value of the ruble, which means that uh, the ruble can buy stuff um, uh, that it buys uh, elsewhere or that other countries have to supply things to Russia in order to get rubles in order to pay for gas. And talk about that a little more cuz that was going to that was my very next point that this decision to enforce ruble payments has boosted the Russian currency and there were those that were saying the day after uh, Biden announced the sanctions that oh the ruble has crashed the Russian economy has crashed and oh Vladimir Putin is really going to be feeling the feeling the pain tomorrow. And there seemed to have been a fairly quick turnaround from a fall of the ruble to a boost in such. Uh, yes, uh, the ruble has uh, did initially um, fall, but it has has rebounded as a result of this. Uh, just the announcement now, when the contracts go into effect tomorrow, the ruble will be even in even more demand. And and so there there are uh, I guess um, uh, discussions about how European countries would get rubles. One way that's provided is to exchange euros for rubles. I, I don't see that as a viable way of doing this, because if the Russians get euro, euros, which they cannot use, and uh, to to buy things, there's no reason for them to accept rubles into their banking system. Uh, and so I think the the, the Euro Europeans are are stuck with having to get euros, uh, excuse me, get rubles by selling things to the Russians, essentially breaking the sanctions. Switching to another country, China courts Islamic world in oil for one push. China is bidding to deepen its ties with the Islamic world as part of an apparent new strategy to develop oil for yuan partnerships and push forward Chinese President Xi Jinping's signature Belt and Road 
Your thoughts, uh, not only is Russia making a move and using a commodity of, of natural gas, China is doing this in oil for yuan. Uh, there's there's uh, something to remember that there's two sides to these Chinese transactions. Uh, the Chinese are transacting with the Saudi Arabians and with the United Arab Republic, uh, Republic and with Iran and with any other uh, oil producing country, including uh, those in South America and and Africa. So so it's not just China that's trading with itself. It's trading with other partners who are agreeing to sell oil uh, and uh, for one, which which the Chinese, of course, can can produce uh, uh, whatever whatever number they need. Uh, uh, that one would be would then be turned around by those uh, countries that sold oil and to to buy things from 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 China, uh, which not only establishes trade in oil but establishes trade in anything else that these um, oil producing countries uh, need. Which is which are many things because many of these oil producing countries only produce oil and import lots of other things like food and and um, uh, equipment and so forth. What does all of this really signal to you when you start to look extrapolate and look look longer term? Are we in the process of of the devaluation of the dollar? Well, we're in the process of devaluation of the dollar if if um, uh, if the U.S. Uh, cannot figure out a way to uh, to I guess uh, go by the dictum that uh, countries that trade don't fight, and so uh, that the U.S. is is actually benefited by trade with uh, uh, with China, and and of course and also Russia, and and Saudi Arabia and so forth that that that. That trade is going to be better for the U.S. if it can trade, but that means it can't fight with these countries that that it needs significant trade from. And so we're going into a multipolar world instead of the U.S. being able to simply dictate whatever economic and and military conditions it wants um, um, that that happened at the fall of the Soviet Union. But in the last 30 years, there's been certainly development by Russia, which is not the old Soviet Union, and by China in terms of they're building their industrial capacity, and they've done that in trade with the rest of the world. Now, trade is supposed to be good for both sides, but if, if, uh, if, uh, uh, if the U.S. wants to uh, uh, pretend that it is the hegemon in the world and it's not going to trade with China or Russia or India or, or other countries that are on the other side of the other pole, then, then it will be less beneficial for the U.S. That the other poll, uh, uh, particularly the, the what are called the BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, those countries have had arrangements for almost two decades, uh, formally for, for over a decade, in terms of establishing trade with, with, uh, with, uh, among themselves. And this situation right now, is accelerating their ability to do that. And so we're definitely entering into a multipolar world, not only militarily, but also economically. And there's another piece, Russia's attack on the dollar, more insurgency than war. Russia's attack on Ukraine was swiftly followed by a series of sanctions from the U.S. and Europe, isolated and outcast Russia or cast out Russia from the global economic system. It's a very public demonstration of the vast array of financial weaponry the West is able to wield. Yet, as true, 
but it, it's wielding this power, but the power seems to be backfiring on the United States. The the intended result, the pain is not being felt. In fact, what seems to be happening is it's bringing countries together. Countries are moving away from the dollar. They are developing their own independent relationships. And at the end of the day, the United States is going to be lost in this. Yeah, this narrative is 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 set into the context of Russia being isolated from the rest of the world. Well, it's being isolated from Europe and, and the United States, but the rest of the world, uh, uh, Africa, South America, and other Asian countries are actually did did not um, um, uh, agree with the uh, sanctions, did not condemn Russia, and are looking to create a block of trading, which would represent about six billion people in the in in the world. So actually, the rest of the world is the world that's not participating in this in this uh, sanctions against against Russia. Uh, Russia is not being isolated. The rest of the world is is coming together because they've lost confidence in the, in, in the dollar and the uh, the truthfulness of the U.S. government in, in maintaining contracts and uh, being able to uh, just simply grab dollars that are that are in um, uh, the West control in uh, New York or London whenever it feels it wants to pressure another country into doing things it wants to do. And, and so we're definitely seeing a multipolar world, and the rest of the world is actually uh, at least as large, larger pop- population-wise, but at least as large economically as the EU, EU and, and the, the U.S. Dr. Linwood Tawheed, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. I look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We're back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Caitlin Johnstone has a great piece in Consortium News revisiting Russiagate in light of Ukraine war. Russiagate was never about removing Trump, but making sure Trump played along with their regime change plans for Moscow and manufacturing consent for the escalations we're seeing today. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and uh, Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War It's Part of, Jim Kavanaugh. Mr. Kavanaugh, as always, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Caitlin writes, it's hard to believe that the last president spent his term pouring weapons into Ukraine, shredding treaties with Russia and ramping up Cold War escalations against Moscow, which helped lead us directly to the extraordinarily dangerous situation we now find ourselves in. And yet mainstream liberals spent his entire administration screaming that he was a Kremlin puppet. Jim Kavanaugh, your thoughts. Yeah, you know, she makes a very good point which should count for something among mainstream liberals, that it was the Trump administration that began the policy of arming Ukraine and giving them heavy arms. And Obama had refused to do that because he thought it would be too provocative to Russia and it would create this provocation that was created and that led to the situation we're in now. So you'd think that liberals would recognize this. You know, she makes the excellent point that both the liberals want to erase this from 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 history 
and and the Trump supporters don't want to you know acknowledge that Trump himself was the one for whatever reason because he was too weak. I think it is he's easily pushed around by the intelligence community and and he he let himself or had you know is on his own behalf. Uh, participated in the arming of Ukraine in a way that was very dangerous and provocative. So, you know, we're in this situation because, as she's saying, the whole apparatus that was against Trump was the intelligence agencies and the national security state that was, that was dead set on continuing to build up uh, Ukraine as a spear against Russia. And that's what we're still in. And you know, that's why, you know, I, I consider what's happening in Ukraine a battle in a war that started a long time ago. And it's the aggressor in that war is the United States. And the, 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 the deep state, which was committed to that war, pushed presidents to do it. And what, you know, if liberals wanted to recognize something, they'd say Obama was the one who resisted that. And Trump was the one who went along with it and created the situation that is now dire and has led to Russia saying we're not we cannot accept this and we're going to do something about it. You know, that analysis I find very interesting and and definitely worthy of merit. And it makes me think about the importance of uh, what political scientist Mac Jones referred to as as a Weltanschung, a a worldview. Uh, And it's interesting that Obama was and was against arming Ukraine because Obama was taught by Brzezinski. And so one would think as a Brzezinski acolyte that Obama would have followed that trend. Uh, your point about Trump and why Trump was uh, – they had problems with him. He had no worldview. Yeah. So he, he he to a great degree, I mean that that was just never his his foreign policy was never his focus. His focus was always Donald Trump and what's in the best interest of the of the Trump empire. It had nothing to do with American empire. Am I right along those lines? So yeah, I think he's he's got no deep principles or deep strategic thinking at all. He is first of all narcissistic and you know in beyond what most politicians are or not sister, but, you know, and he, look, look what happened in Syria. He wanted to get out of Syria. And all they had to do was say, no, let's stay there for the oil. And then, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's stay there for the oil. You know, that's the way he thinks transactionally. And if someone gives him, you know, the bait, he'll, uh, uh, he'll bite it. And so, you know, and he was also uh, extremely, uh, even more than, to some extent than, than, than any, than, than certainly Obama, you know, Zionist. So anything that went along with Israel, he would go along with, you know, he recognized the Golan Heights. He got out of the Iran nuclear deal, which Obama had gone into. So it was, you know, he's, he's Trump was subject to, uh, and especially pressure from military tough guys he likes. So the military, I think both made have might have restrained Trump in some ways, but also, Pushed them in ways to push them where they, they wanted to go. They wanted to stay in, in, in Syria, so they stayed in Syria. They wanted to arm Iran, uh, Ukraine, so they armed Ukraine. Uh, uh, they didn't want to attack Iran, so they backed off from Iran. So I think Trump was, you know, that's my my position on Trump. Always been he's he's a he's a weak person politically. He's a tremendously strong narcissistic person, and he creates a, has a very tremendously strong personality and character that has some kind of resonance to to an audience. But in terms of this deep politics, you know, 
he wasn't thinking very clearly and very very deeply and very strategically, and he's amenable to being pushed to being pushed around. I want to be sure people understand when I talk about Obama not wanting to arm Ukraine, but it was the Obama administration that greenlit the 2014 coup uh, that got us in, into where we are now. So I just want to be sure that and, and speak to that, that, that people understand that, that that contributed greatly into into where we are now. Oh, yeah. Look, Obama was completely hypocritical about that. You know, I, I love the, the scenes of Obama finger wagging at, at Yanukovych saying, you can't have your police, uh, you know, attacking these protesters, <laughs> these guys, the protesters who are the fascist groups out there, burning police officers and, 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 and storming uh, buildings. And uh, so Obama, yeah, I'm not arguing on behalf of Obama in some right. general sense. He was part of the American imperialist apparatus. He was part of the apparatus that was seeking to, in in a general sense, you know, push Ukraine into the Western camp in a way that would have divorced it entirely from Russia. But he was a little more careful about stepping too far over a line that would be provocative and Mm -hmm. would uh, create the conflict we're in now. There's another interesting article that I think is related to the bigger issue inside Hunter Biden's multi-million dollar deals with the Chinese energy company. The deal was years in the making, the culmination of forging contracts, hosting dinners of flights to and from China. But on August 2nd, 2017, signatures were quickly affixed, one from Hunter Biden, the other from a Chinese executive named Guangwen Dong. Within days, a new Kathy Bank account was created. Within a week, millions of dollars started to change hands. Within a year, it would all begin to collapse. The deeper we dig, uh, and you don't have to dig that deep, Hunter Biden's name is all over a lot of really sketchy stuff. Yeah, it is really reading that was kind of, geez, there's so much crap going on here. You know, the amount of money. Well, it's not not actually in terms of these people and this group of people it's a few million dollars at a time that's not that much money actually but he was getting millions of dollars at a time uh flying around at least it seems like it went it went to his companies and it went to joe biden's brother which is uncle james biden joe biden's brother he's got money he can't account for that he's being you know the bank and the irs were saying how can you account for that and he hasn't answered that and you see the details of this are just kind of astounding and I don't know how illegal it is. You know, that's all up to, but it, it's a grift. <laughs> I mean, you see, it's a typical, you know, American capitalist poli- politician's grift uh, and, a, and politician's relative grift, you know, that he's, he's, and even the Washington Post is admitting it. You know, he's, he was clearly trading on his influence, father's name and his influence. And to have the Washington Post publish this, you know, they're trying to keep saying, oh, it's the purported emails of the purported laptop that he purportedly owned, but it's clear to everybody, you know, they've, they've verified it. You know, we verified it. We, we checked it against other sources. The documents, the, the, the amounts that were stated in the emails are matched the amounts that were actually in transactions that occurred in the accounts and wire transfers. So he's just involved in a whole mess of stuff that is so hinky and clearly related to promoting this Chinese company, you know, this is stuff that this is what was hidden in 2020, deliberately censored 
by the media, including the Washington Post and by all the major media, and the, the New York Post article about it was censored. They, this is just Russian disinformation. And it's stuff that, you know, it's, it's creepy, slimy corruption, whether it's illegal or not, it's another thing. But it's something that would have reflected badly on the Biden family. And, you know, very well, and I'll say it again, every Trump supporter knows very well that if this were Donnie or, you know, it, 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 Trump Jr., this would have been uh, all over the news and still would be all over the news constantly. And they're just kind of getting in, sneaking in, in right now, and they're, they're saying something about it. But it is, you know, and what is Joe Biden's role in this? Who knows? Does he even know? We don't even know at this point. I do remember that in the original, I tried to look it up today, there were mentions in those emails of setting aside money for the big guy. Mm-hmm. And that was about, I don't know if that was China. That might have been about Burisma, but I think it might have been China. So I don't know. That wasn't mentioned in the Washington Post article. And uh, but the whole thing is just something that, you know, what, what's terrible about it is they tried to cover it up and they just completely denied that these emails were real. And now they're, post, they're publishing articles about it that dig deeper into it. As you said, you don't have to go too deep and you find a whole mess of corruption. They're not relying on statements by unnamed sources. They're talking about government records, court documents, and newly disclosed bank statements. And these documents include a signed copy of a $1 million legal retainer, emails related to the wire transfers, and $3.8 million in consulting fees that are confirmed in new bank records and agreements signed by Hunter Biden. They are very clear to say they don't have evidence that Joe personally benefited or knew of these transactions, but I find it very hard to believe that as the vice president of the United States, whose son is traversing between Ukraine and Burisma and China and and these uh, Chinese conglomerates, that his father was not kept abreast of what was going on. If not, that's negligence on Joe's part. We got 30 seconds. Yeah. And in fact, we know that the State Department was saying to to themselves anyway, they were saying uh, over the Ukraine stuff, we have to be, we're to watch out what Hunter Biden is doing. This is bad. And the president should be aware of what's going on now. So was he not told by the State Department this? Were they not talking? We know that ex- concern was expressed within the government agencies about Hunter Biden's doings and how bad they, how, that they were creating the perception of, beyond perception, of conflicts of interest and of selling selling influence to these countries. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. I look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. It is reported temporary Mariupol ceasefire agreed to ahead of Red Cross evacuation. Officials from Russia and Ukraine said earlier today that they have agreed on a temporary ceasefire in the besieged southern port city of Mariupol to allow citizens to evacuate 
and humanitarian aid to enter. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg expressed doubt today about Russia's claim that it is withdrawing from the area around Kiev, saying Moscow has lied about its intentions before and appears to be repositioning troops for fresh attacks. What, Mark Schloboda, are we to make of Stoltenberg's statements? Because to me, these things aren't necessarily diametrically opposed. They can both be true. And if Russia has agreed to a ceasefire to allow for citizens to evacuate through corridors, that says to me that I need to listen to what President Putin is saying because he's doing what he said he set out to do. Help me out. I think that Jen Stoltenberg, being the secretary of uh, general of NATO, has expertly constructed a straw man uh, uh, in place of what the Russian Ministry of Defense and Government actually announced. And he has tilted at it extremely successfully and knocked it to the ground and ripped it apart. And that straw man is dead. I mean, I, Jen Stoltenberg has completely eradicated that, that uh, straw man. Unfortunately, the way Jen Stoltenberg is presenting it is is not what actually the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed. So by falsely presenting what Russia has said and then saying they're lying, he hopes to win some type of PR propaganda uh, victory out of this. But R Russia was was you know quite clear that they are reducing combat activity in the area of of Kiev to a degree, uh, but they were quite specific that this is for the purposes of redeployment and focus on what they're calling phase two of their military operation. Phase one of the operation was a whole-scale degradation of the offensive capability of the Ukrainian military, specifically in some areas, uh, but uh, you know, uh, broad spread throughout the country. Now the focus is on the bulk is shifting to the bulk of the Ukrainian uh, military, some 40 to 60,000 of, of their regular army troops that have been pinned in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass. Um, they have been effectively encircled from the north and the south. And a part, uh, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, part of that encirclement was uh, to present a credible threat uh, and or surround several of the large metropolitan areas, uh, sp specifically Kiev, Sumy, um, uh, Odessa, uh, Chernigov, uh, and Kharkov, in order to prevent uh, reinforcement or resupply of those uh, regular troops in the Donbass. Now that the cauldron is effectively closed. They will present the Ukrainian uh, regular military there with an ultimatum that you either uh, you know surrender or we will begin the process of militarily neutralizing you, to use a euphemism. Um, but um, by uh, 
the Russian military made perfectly clear that this is not a ceasefire, right? A broad ceasefire in the area. This is this is not a decreasing of the Russian military intervention in Ukraine. It's simply shifting to a new uh, phase of the conflict, a new focus, uh, according to the plan that they have, which evidently the, uh, you know, the Western media and the governments, uh, you know, despite their claims that they fully understand the Russian playbook have not seemed to understood as of yet. There are some other uh, issues that I wanted to get your uh, perspective on, and it's it's reported in bloodied frontline town, Ukrainian forces push Russians back in the second month of war. Ukraine's frontline soldiers are more confident they they than they had been expected to be when Russian forces invaded in areas north of the capital. The Russian advance has been stopped, while in Moshkun. And other areas, Ukrainian forces have mounted counteroffensive with American-made weapons such as Javelin anti-tank missiles and pushed the invaders out of town. But for now, a military stalemate continues, which Ukrainian forces consider a major victory, whose initial Russia's initial objective was to take over the capital within days. I've never read anything that a statement that said that was the Russian objective. Can you speak to this whole thing about Mushkun and Ukrainian forces uh, pushing their resistance and pushing back? Yeah. So once again, this is, you know, the Russia says the primary focus of our operations, uh, of our intervention uh, in Ukraine uh, at the moment is the Donbass. And when the forces that Russia sent to some other cities don't – first of all, Western military analysts correctly assessed right in the beginning, well, hey, well, that force is not uh, strong enough to take over a city of four or five million. Well, they were correct because they weren't <laughs> actually intended to do that. Um, they they were intended to pin down uh, troops there, uh, in some cases encircle the cities. But it, it's quite clear that the amount of troops that Russia, uh, the Russian military sent to Kiev was not enough to encircle the city. And they never actually even tried to encircle the city from the south. That was that was not the purpose. Um, so uh, once again, you know, they've 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 successfully uh, uh, defeated a, a straw man. There is a one town. Uh, in the suburbs of Kiev uh, that Russian forces have mostly departed from, um, that Ukraine has has claimed this this big victory. It's a big sign of that the war is going their way and that's what they're winning. That is that is the the dominant narrative that that they are spinning and that the Western media is repeating. Ukraine is on the counterattack and they've they've successfully, uh, you know, uh, taken back this uh, one small town. Well, th- there's a couple problems with that. Russia has, you know, just got done saying, well, actually, our our focus of our operations isn't here and we're redeploying those forces elsewhere for what we see as, you know, more important strategically. Yay, we won! Because, you know, <laughs> we're, we're, uh, uh, you know, Russia, you know, uh, withdrew mostly from that one small town. Uh, 
Uh, neglecting, of course, the fact that it, the, the amount of territory, again, Russia's goal in Ukraine isn't even to actively control large swaths of territory uh, outside of, of recovering you know, uh, the whole areas of the Donbass for the uh, Donetsk and Lugansk republics. But they still have uh, taken control of an area of Ukraine larger uh, well as large as the entirety of the great britain including the united kingdom and ireland that's that's a pretty significant amount of territory and when ukraine can claim that they almost successfully took back one small town in the suburbs of kiev until you read down to the bottom of the washington post article that is describing this great uh, military victory that that shows that the the course of the battle um, uh, in, uh, there um, they uh, said uh, that the one the other guy that they talked to for the course of this interview the other Ukrainian military was more cautious in his assessment we are not sure we have one hundred percent control and there are still Russian diversion groups in the village firing at at this troops so. <laughs> Obviously, not even when Russia has redeployed troops away from the area do they have complete control of the one small town that they claim, uh, you know, to have this one great victory in. So I would take all of these assessments with a grain of salt. Doubtless, it is a large conflict over a large fledge of, of territory, and the Ukrainian uh, military has been armed and trained uh, by the U.S. Uh, by the NATO for the last eight years. They're continuing to flood the country with lethal arms and money uh, to support them. And they have conscripted every male in the country, every single male in the country between the ages of 16 and 60 to buttress their 250,000 uh, uh, troop army. Uh, military forces and Russia's military intervention force was only 190,000, despite being the uh, you know the the uh, initiator of the intervention, the attacker, if you will. So th the fact that very occasionally across this battlefield you will find one small tactical victory, mm -hmm. or maybe not even so much a victory, is is no big surprise, and you should refrain from drawing triumphalist uh, accounts because it will probably come back analytically to bite you in the butt, in the butt, in the big scale of these sorts of things. This one I find very interesting. <clears throat> Russian forces invading Ukraine suffer low morale. Reports out of Ukraine indicate a breakdown in some units stemming from logistics and sustainment issues. Uh, we continue to see indications that the Russians did not properly plan for logistics and sustainment. This is from like General Kirby in the Pentagon. When I Googled this story beyond just what I think this might have been in the Washington Post. So I went I wanted to see if this was being uh, reported on in other media, because I also saw it on television. What I found is this story keeps popping up month after month after month after month. And even though this particular conflict has not been been going on for months and months, the story as it relates to other conflicts pops up as well. So this just seems to be the regurgitation of a similar talking point. 
Yeah, this is mostly psychological war- warfare, trying to to convince, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian forces uh, to keep fighting and and trying to to wage a psychological battle uh, at home against you know the russian people and and the families of the military at home it doesn't seem to be much mm-hmm. having much effect because putin's approval rating just went up to 83% and a new record high of 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 russians uh 69% approve of the direction the country is taking uh, so that, you know, the effects of, of psychological effects of sanctions and, and this type of uh, mostly disinformation about uh, the Russian military is, is not having the intended effect. But you also find that invariably when when, you know, such things are cited, it is quoted to an anonymous right. official mm-hmm. right within uh, usually the uh, intelligence agencies. So I think you have to take that with a grain of salt. We're one month into this conflict. Um, it took, uh, you know, the U.S. in a, a much weaker uh, country a, a month to reach Baghdad and Russia uh, uh, controls a uh, considerable chunk of Ukrainian territory and has drastically reduced the offensive capability of a military that has been armed and trained by NATO for the last eight years. So um, if Russia is having some morale problems, well, then I I would really hate to see them when they don't have morale problems. I know we're going to run long here. Before you go, if you could speak to the humanitarian corridor issue. Yeah. Um, so Russia has been constantly arguing, that's the big point of their diplomatic push so far, is to open humanitarian corridors to get people out of the cities that uh, the uh, the far-right battalions uh, armed and trained by the Ukrainian government, the regular military, has uh, retreated uh, into an urban combat and is using residential buildings uh, and, and, and other civilian infrastructure for firing positions, uh, barracks, you know, and so forth. So you know the the primary goal is to get for the russian military diplomatically is to get the forces out of there and to that effect they have opened humanitarian corridors in in five uh, different directions in Ukraine, right? Uh, corridors uh, for Kiev, Chornogov, Sumy, Kharkov, Mariupol. These are open every day from uh, 10 a.m. There is a regime of silence where the um, uh, guns and the artillery stop for the sole purpose of getting people out during the daylight hours where they then later, you know, uh, continue the assault. But every day they try to, uh, you know, uh, create Mm. uh, conditions for people to get out using the humanitarian corridors. Uh, And according to dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews that the Western mainstream media refuses to show, but people who have been evacuated from Mariupol uh, and, and that number uh, uh, is uh, according to the Russian government is approaching some 500,000 of uh, people uh, in in uh, the Donbass, uh, mostly from Mariupol, that have been evacuated to Russia. Uh, they claim that it is Azov, the, the uh, far right uh, Banderite battalion, that is firing on them, preventing them from using humanitarian corridors, mining the corridors, and so okay. on. And there's a lot of video evidence to support that. And quickly. Because there's another story Max Blumenthal was reporting was bombing of Mariupol theater staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention. Testimony by evacuated Mariupol residents and warnings of a false flag attack 
undermine the Ukrainian government's claims about a Russian bombing of a local theater sheltering civilians. Yeah, you need to read Max Blumenthal's piece. He goes through excellent video Mm -hmm. footage of the theater before, during, and and after this supposed bombing. Once again, there have been no confirmed casualties of this incident. Uh, You know, we're looking at two weeks after the event. It seems quite clear that this, uh, you know, was a staged attempt uh, to try to gain international support from a theater that had been used as an Azov base, uh, but had been long evacuated of civilians. Mark Schlaboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. I look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's an interesting uh, piece in Global Times. Neighboring countries' solution helps more than just Afghans. The third foreign minister's meeting among the neighboring countries of Afghanistan is hosted by China in Tonji, East China's Anhui province, on Wednesday and today. Foreign ministers or representatives of Pakistan, Iran, Russia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan are attending the meeting. At the same time, the neighboring countries of Afghanistan plus Afghanistan Foreign Ministers Dialogue, as well as a meeting of the China-U.S.-Russia Plus consultation mechanism on the Afghan issue, will also be held. The two latter meetings are new compared with the previous Foreign Ministers meetings. What does all of this mean? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. Uh, As always, Ken, welcome back. Good to be here again. Uh, The China-hosted meeting of the foreign ministers of Afghanistan's neighboring countries is taking neighboring country solutions on the Afghan issue to the next level. Talk about this and and the significance of it, uh, because I know, for example, uh, that Iran is calling for uh, the neighboring countries to work together to help Afghanistan. And I think when you read Iran's statements on this and you read between the lines, what Iran seems to be saying is not only do we need to help these folks out of this incredibly, incredibly perilous situation, not only the dysfunction of their government, but also the, the the current crisis that they find themselves in terms in in terms of famine. But if you want to have political influence, you got to help the people first, and that will then enable you to have stronger ties with the Taliban and move the Taliban in the direction you want them to go. Am I reading too much into that, Dr. Hammond? No, I don't think so at all. I think that uh, it's it's an interesting situation right now. Of course, Afghanistan was you know devastated by twenty years of imperialist war waged by the United States, and you know with some assistance from its uh, its uh, subordinate allies. 
and and then of course uh, just a few months ago all of that finally was uh, was brought to to a, a rather pathetic end uh, the United States withdrew and uh, the Taliban uh, have uh, reassumed uh, the leading role. They, they've reestablished themselves as uh, as the country's government. Uh, the United States has, of course, abandoned the the Afghan people, which uh, really is no big surprise, uh, and indeed confiscated many uh, Afghan assets in international uh, uh, accounts, meaning that uh, assistance, aid, food, medical supplies have been largely uh, unavailable. Uh, in the in the in the following months, in the months after the American uh, uh, retreat, and that's obviously a very very difficult situation for the Afghan people. It's a big big challenge for the new government. Now, in, what's interesting about this meeting? The Chinese are hosting this in in Tunchi, and uh, all of the neighboring countries, all of the countries that have borders on Afghanistan plus Russia, are are represented here. China has not actually diplomatically recognized the Taliban government. Uh, uh, this is a step, I think, a, a very positive step in that direction. But, uh, you know, the, the idea is that, that uh, the Taliban government needs to establish itself and, and, and really develop some legitimacy and, and credibility and all that. Uh, and this is one way in which China is happy to, to facilitate that process. Um, but China certainly recognizes, as do the other neighboring countries, that the situation in Afghanistan is, is just terrible for the Afghan people. And so the question is, uh, exactly as you put it, as the, as the government of Iran has been saying, that, that, you know, first things first. First thing, let's help take care of the people in Afghanistan. If the people can be fed, housed, clothed, uh, provided with uh, with medical support, with public health care, uh, then you create a foundation for a stable society, for a society where people can feel secure in their own livelihoods. Then the question of how is the government going to function, where is it going to go, what's their policies going to be like, how will their international relations be, those kinds of political questions can be addressed in a calmer uh, uh, sort of environment in a calmer atmosphere. But the first thing is to take care of the needs of the people, which obviously, clearly, was never the priority, uh, you know, during the years of the American occupation and invasion. And that uh, that uh, the legacy that that left behind is, is, of course, continuing to be devastating for the Afghan people today. And if we look at this region as a neighborhood, and we put it in very practical terms, uh, none of these countries, China, Pakistan, Iran, so on, they, they don't want a neighbor, they don't want their neighbor's property to drop in value. They don't want, as, as, as you know, you don't want the guy living next door to you, you don't want his house to start to, to have dirty trucks and broken down trucks in his, in his driveway because that then uh, lowers your... So as these countries are looking at refugees, as they're looking at conflict on their borders uh, that can filter and flow into their countries, they are saying, we've got to find real workable solutions here. And again, by helping the people in the country, you make friends and influence people. And it seems as though the United States is locked, is locking itself out of these dialogues uh, to, to its own detriment. Sure. I mean, you know, the interest of the United States in Afghanistan was never Afghanistan itself. It was never the Afghan people. It Correct. was the projection of American power. It was the control 
over an area that that was seen as as uh, you know tied into to uh, international forces and movements that that were antithetical to American elites' uh, self interest. You know, uh, so that's that that was a whole just a, a, a terrible waste of, of resources and, and, and life over 20 years that was really pretty pretty unnecessary from the start but yeah you're you know the the what the what the neighboring countries are doing now is is very very practical uh you know geopolitics they mm-hmm. they don't want a dysfunctional failed state right in their midst they don't want refugee flows they don't they don't want the kind of instability uh, that that uh, you know famine conditions and, and and possible disease conditions and stuff uh, you know would would engender in Afghanistan. What's interesting, I think, of course, is that you know China is is uh, routinely uh, demonized in uh, in Western media for its supposed uh, uh, you know uh, policies towards Islamic minorities within its own boundaries, and yet here they are making this very very obvious and and, and leading this effort uh, to try to address the humanitarian needs and concerns of the Afghan people. Uh, I, I think that that sort of puts these, these bogus claims about, uh, about policies in, within the country uh, into, into a lot clearer framework uh, that, uh, that kind of exposes the, the self-serving nature of those accusations coming from you know, American media and politicians. There's another issue. The Solomon Islands rejects backlash over planned security deal with China. The Solomon Islands have come under harsh criticism from Australia over the Pacific Island nation's plans to sign a security pact with China. According to a leaked draft of the agreement, which hasn't been finalized, the Solomon Islands could, quote, request China to send police, armed police, military personnel and other law enforcement and armed forces, end quote. China would also be able to make ship visits to carry out logistical replenishment in and have stopover and transition in Solomon Islands. Uh, If folks look at a map, and you will see that the Solomon Islands are off the coast of Australia. Explain quickly why this is a big deal and what does this mean? How does this benefit China and how does it benefit the Solomon Islands? Well, uh, there's there's two tracks that are involved here. It, it benefits Solomon Islands pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. China is going to be able to provide assistance in economic development, assistance in uh, you know all kinds of uh, of, uh, of ways to you know a, a relatively poor uh, uh, country out out there in the Pacific. Uh, you know, the Pacific for a long time has you know certainly the United States has thought of it as kind of an American lake. Uh, and so the idea that uh, that this is this is uh, this is our territory, this is our our sphere of influence, however you want to uh, conceptualize it, uh, having China uh, come into this area, having China establish uh, friendly relationships with with local governments, uh, that can only be seen by by the American uh, you know power elites as as challenging their their hegemony, challenging their their dominance. The Solomon Islands just a few years ago um, withdrew their political, their diplomatic recognition of the local government on Taiwan and instead established political relations and diplomatic relations with the government of the People's Republic, the government of China. Um, and, and, you know, they are a sovereign country. They have a right to establish relations with, with whom they wish. But that did change the, the sort of political landscape across the Central Pacific. 
that's what is, of course, freaking out the Australians, the Americans, all of the, the you know, the, the sort of white former colonies out there uh, that uh, that that think of this as their turf, as their uh, their domain. And the idea that China, which is, after all, a Pacific Rim country uh, and 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 the rising uh, uh, economic and, and, and sort of political uh, uh, uh force in that area, it seems entirely reasonable for China to want to have diplomatic relations. And, and if they then choose to be to be helpful and extend assistance to to another country, that certainly, again, is, is entirely within within global diplomatic norms. But it does represent a change in the in the, the sort of political landscape of uh, of, of the Pacific. There was a, uh, an interesting article also in The Guardian today that uh, that cited the prime minister of the Micronesian Federation, which is uh, another island uh, uh, grouping out there in, in the, more in the Western Pacific, um, in which he was not like the Australians, not being critical of, of this, uh, of uh, the Solomon Islands actions sort of on, on their face, but saying that that his concern was that this would make the United States intervene and that if there was a conflict between the United States and China, it might mean that some of the Pacific Island nations, you know, would would suffer uh, consequences because of that, which I thought was a very interesting argument. Not that there's anything wrong with China helping the Solomon Islands out, but that it might sort of provoke the United States into countermeasures. And of course, the idea of, of living in, in this atmosphere of fear of what the United States might do to you only highlights how bankrupt American policy in that part of the world is. Looking at the map and looking at how close the Solomon Islands are to the Philippines and knowing that the United States has lost, didn't we lose access? Was it the Subic Bay base and yes, Subic that, Bay. that we lost yeah. access to? Yes. So... And, and I think the United States is is trying to regain access through the private sector to the Philippines that there's more in store. Stay tuned is what I is what I think people need to understand. No, absolutely. This is part of an ongoing reconfiguration of, uh, of geopolitics. We normally think of this in kind of macro terms. Uh, but here we have even even a relatively small nation like uh, the Solomon Islands trying to chart its way into a future that isn't entirely dominated by by the United States and the legacies of the past. Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. I look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Thanks, Ken. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Now this to me is beyond crazy, but it speaks volumes. Axios reports, Blinken asks Bennett for his Iran deal alternative. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken asked Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and other Israeli officials for their alternative to a nuclear deal with Iran that will limit Tehran's uranium enrichment. 
For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst, producer, media consultant, Laith Maroof. As always, Laith, welcome back. My pleasure. So in my humble opinion, if the U.S. is serious about getting this deal done, why would the American Secretary of State ask the Israeli prime minister, who, by the way, is not a signatory to the agreement, for his alternative to the deal? You know, to me, you'll never find the right answer looking in the wrong place, and you'll never get to the right place following the wrong map. So to me, Laith, it's one thing if I could trust Tony Blinken and think that he was actually trying to find a needle in a haystack, that he was actually searching for viable alternatives. But the viable alternative, in my opinion, has been clear to just about everybody around the world. Just get back into the darn deal. So with that, with that rant, Laith Maroof. Yeah, I mean, it is sometimes mind-boggling when you uh, read into this propaganda because it doesn't make sense, uh, not for anybody that has uh, any mental capabilities. And what does this mean? For, for me, this statement from Blinken is just hot air. The reality is that they are wasting time they will not be signing any new deal or returning to the old one. Um, their hope is to, uh, you know, allow enough time for the Zionists and their tools in the Gulf to, you know, put their forces together, arrange themselves in a way that could be in confrontation with Iran without the U.S. having to go into a war, uh, since it is concentrating on Russia and China. The truth of the matter is that probably, you know, if Blinken did ask for such a plan, he already had it in front of him, and they already probably know that this plan is unworkable. If the Zionists and the Gulf monarchs decide to confront Iran in a war, uh, in the event that uh, clearly this uh, deal is not signed again, there will be a total destruction of all the glass towers of the Gulf monarchs, and there will be uh, a wiping out of Israel from the map. And uh, ultimately, uh, this is where we're going. Everybody knows the direction that we're going at, all the players in the region. And it's an issue about will the resistance axis in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iran, in Yemen, wait for their enemies to be ready to attack them. And I don't think they will wait. Axios writes why it matters after months of indirect negotiations between Iran and the Biden administration, a draft agreement is almost done. Then they say the last remaining stumbling block is Iran's demand that the Biden administration remove the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the foreign terrorist organization's blacklist. I've been trying to figure out a parallel in the American military system. This, this is far from being, I think, a, an apt comparison, but for the sake of conversation, let's say that— Iran was sanctioning the Joint Chiefs of Staff, 
American Joint Chiefs of Staff. So in my opinion, this is a, demanding that they remove the IRGC from the terrorist list is a reasonable request because what, in my opinion, for them to remain on the list is a backdoor way of maintaining sanctions. Laith Maruf. Especially, especially because the military and the state in Iran uh, has a huge stake in the economy in terms of, uh, you know, building uh, factories and infrastructure that is uh, managed by them instead of the private sector. So, of course, the uh, I, I would say a more apt uh I, I got uh, would, would be the would be the Joint Chiefs and then the CEOs of the American military uh, complex. Yes, yes, and and add to that obviously the special forces because right, okay, the IRGC is like the special forces or the Navy SEAL, let's say, of the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. United States. <clears throat> so uh, definitely, the government of Iran would not be able to function uh, if uh, in in an international market if the IRGC are still on the uh, terrorism list. And in this Axios piece, final point on this issue, Blinken asked Bennett for his alternative to the nuclear deal and how he would stop Iran from reaching nuclear weapon capability when its current enrichment pace would allow it to do so within weeks. That point, to me, is incredibly still frustrating to read because Iran isn't developing nuclear weapons. And there are independent individuals that have gone in and uh, like Scott Ritter did in Iraq, weapons inspectors that have gone in and said it's not happening. Not to mention the fact that the statement from from the Ayatollah has said that it is against Islam for there to be a fa- the fatwa that was issued it is against Islam the tenets of Islam to develop a weapon of this nature so it's just not this is they're chasing zombies here yeah and and not only are they chasing chasing zombies as you said but they're also projecting their own uh, malice mm-hmm on Mm -hmm. others you know we know it is the zionists that have a nuclear weapon is the only country in uh africa and western asia that has a nuclear weapon and uh we know that they are the ones that are threatening to use these nuclear weapons uh in the situation where the palestinians or the arabs are uh capable or able of uh liberating their land and you know uh, iran is if it wants to have a nuclear weapon, it would have had it already a long time ago. We know that the development of the uh, ballistic missiles and nuclear capabilities of North Korea were jointly developed with Iran and Syria, and Iran chose not to uh, develop its private nuclear heads. It could at any moment it wants to. But as we can see from geography and history, Iran doesn't need to do so. As long as it's uh, interested in, in, in protecting its territory, you know, 
millennia of uh, invasions into Iran were uh, not successful because of how, how hard the terrain is. So the United States can can threaten to nuke Iran, or Israel can threaten to nuke Iran, but it cannot occupy it. Switching gears, Press TV reports, Iran says that neighbors should join hands to help rebuild Afghanistan. Iran has called on Afghanistan's neighboring and friendly countries to strengthen cooperation in the reconstruction of the conflict-ridden state and boost assistance to the oppressed nation without political and legal considerations. Yes, I mean, this. there was a, a conference held uh, in uh, northwestern China with a meeting of most of the Central Asian countries, Russia, China, Afghanistan, and Iran, and Pakistan. And uh, together they are planning to uh, find ways to uplift the situation in uh, Afghanistan, the economy, and make sure the population doesn't starve. Uh, we also heard that uh, uh, Russia just accepted the credentials of the first representative of uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan in uh, Moscow. So we should be seeing in the next uh, few weeks and months that uh, all these countries surrounding Afghanistan will be acknowledging the government of the Taliban as the legitimate sovereign. And uh, we heard also Pakistan today. Um, speak about including Afghanistan in this uh, trade corridor with China. So there will be a building of highways and train tracks to connect Afghanistan to this corridor between Pakistan and China. And, and of course, this is playing out uh, in Pakistan in, in really bizarre ways. Uh, we, we saw the president of Pakistan um, visit Russia on the first day of the war with Ukraine. We saw how the position that he took uh, being neutral in this is um, amassed a lot of pressure from the United States. Uh, there is talks right now of uh, a vote of non-confidence in the parliament of Pakistan to uh, take down the government of, uh, of the prime minister. And uh, part of it is this issue. It's not only about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the fact that Pakistan is not uh, taking order from the United States, but also because Pakistan is trying to end its hostilities with Afghanistan and build a new relationship that the United States is not happy with. I found it very interesting. One of the uh, spokespersons, I think, for Iran, Amir Abdullahian, stressed that the root cause of problems in Afghanistan is the long-term occupation and misguided policies of the occupiers, mainly the United States. The occupation of Afghanistan did not contribute to its development but caused some sort of dependency, which resulted in the collapse of Afghanistan's political and economic structures. He then goes on to say, to achieve a safe, secure, and stable Afghanistan, the world community, particularly us as neighbors, must enhance cooperation and expand assistance to the people and make efforts to strengthen political dialogue. So what I hear him saying is that if you really, uh, when I read between the lines here, if you really want a stable Afghanistan, then you've got to save the people. And by saving the people, you can then develop the rapport that you need to, to, to develop so that you can have positive impact on the politics. 
Yeah, I mean, those are uh, very basic thoughts that uh, it's amazing that the United States occupied all these countries over the last three decades and built zero infrastructure in these countries. I mean, even the, the, the British and with their genocides in India and, and, and Bangladesh and, and every place that they occupied, they still built some infrastructure or built uh, buildings, uh, museums, whatever it is. This is, this is uh, as a colonial power, the United States has probably been the worst in history in terms of uh, not giving back to any of the countries that it occupies or loots. Uh, anything and and you know clearly uh, societies that are impoverished are uh, going to have a population that is restless. You know uh, we know most of the population in the United States probably doesn't like its government, but just because they have enough services and uh, uh, jobs and so forth, there will be no revolution in the United States. You see, if we want to have less extremism, we have to provide the populations with the basics of living. Well said, Laith Marouf, as always. Greatly, greatly appreciate your time. Thank you so much for that analysis. I look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Orinoco Tribune reports the battle for Mariupol is coming to an end and civilian testimonies on the crimes of Azov are multiplying. As the battle for Mariupol draws to a close and the Russian army and the DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic, People's Militia have now taken control of most of the city. Civilians are evacuating in mass, and stories of the horrors committed by the fighters of the Azov Regiment are multiplying. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an independent journalist and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Dan Lazar, as always, Dan, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. So the uh, Orinoco Tribune reporter uh, Christelle Neant reports civilians fleeing western and central Mariupol wait in the check-in lines or on the bus that will take them to their chosen destination. Christelle spoke to several of them. All of them confirm that the Azov fighters were evicting Mariupol civilians from their flats and using them as firing points. Worse, they were also setting up near the bomb shelters where women, children, and elderly people were to shoot, knowing they were putting the lives of these civilians in danger. Uh, Dan Lazar, it sounds as though uh, a lot of these stories of atrocities are false flag operations and also that the uh, Ukrainian fighters, particularly the Azov and the, the other uh, far-right fighters, are putting civilians in harm's way. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I have no, I have no firsthand evidence myself. Obviously, mm -hmm. I'm not in, I'm not in Mariupol. I haven't spoken to these people, 
but all I can say is that their 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 stories uh, gain credibility because the Azov Battalion is the is the chief force that was uh, that was that was uh, holding off the uh, the the Russians in Mariupol, and Azov is a is essentially is a Nazi formation. So when you have when you have fifteen hundred or two thousand, whatever the number is. Nazis, then we can expect the worst. The worst. Uh, so, so therefore, I mean, I'm. I think these people uh, have enhanced credibility as a con- as a consequence. You're not there, and I'm not there, and this next reporter isn't there. But I trust this guy beyond anything. Max Blumenthal has a story. Was bombing in Mariupol theater staged by Ukrainian Azov extremists to trigger NATO intervention. And also, just we earlier in uh, in the show today, we spoke earlier uh, with uh, Mark Sloboda, who is in Moscow, and said that uh, Max's reporting on this story is beyond reproach, and that um, testimony by evacuated Mariupol residents and Warnings of a false flag attack undermine the Ukrainian government's claims about a Russian bombing of a local theater. Western media reported that Russia's military deliberately attacked the Donetsk Academic Regional Drama Theater in Mariupol, Ukraine, claiming it was filled with civilians. But a closer look reveals that local residents had were, had warned three days before the March 16 incident that the theater would be the site of a false flag attack launched by the openly neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. And this story sounds eerily reminiscent to the women's hospital story. Uh, We find out later that that was staged. People were warned early. People were evacuated from the hospital. And that Azov was actually using the hospital as a communication center. Yes, that's absolutely true. And it's also eerily uh, reminiscent of similar kinds of a Events that took place in Syria, correct during the uh, during the, um, the 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 U.S. backed uh, jihadi assault on that country from 2011 to 2016 or so, um, and uh, and in those cases you would have uh, you would the, the pattern was always the same. There would be a report of a of a poison gas attack. Uh, the the press would go bonkers, screaming headlines. Uh, people would call for. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's head, and there'd be enormous pressure on on the U.S. to intervene uh, to supposedly protect um, innocent Syrian civilians from horrible attacks like that. But they ne- the stories never added up, never added up. And in fact, um, a, a, a special U.N. body charged uh, with investigating mm-hmm. one of those incidents, actually faced a a, a small mutiny uh, in their ranks by investigators, highly trained investigators, who said that the evidence of the attack appeared to have been planted. Their mutiny was also, I think, attributable to the fact that as they were trying to write their report, to include the fact that it seemed that the attacks were staged, that part of the report was altered without their permission. Correct. Absolutely okay. Correct. Okay. So, 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 and, and the reason I bring that up is that is that these kinds of incidents 
are, are all too common in this kind of at this kind of thing. When when, they, when the story of the Mariupol theater hit, I mean, everyone that the, the conclusion everyone jumped to was that oh my God, these Russians are barbarians. They don't care about human life. Uh, those poor uh, those poor um, uh, Ukrainians are suffering under a rain of bombs. Hundreds of people must be you know must be dead beneath the rubble. And uh, and and thanks. Thank God for those heroic defenders, i.e., i.e. the the Azov Battalion for 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 holding off the barbarians. But um, but it's just this, this, it's the same kind of scenario, and again, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for the Russians to bomb the theater. Um, it doesn't. The, the the basement was not big enough to hold hundreds of people. Could only hold a few dozen, according to videos that were subsequently released. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the attack was all too convenient. Um, and there is substantial evidence that the, um, that there was, uh, there were, there were forewarnings that the, uh, the Azov Brigade battalion was going to try to stage a, a provocation of this sort. Um, and, uh, there's a good deal of evidence that was the case. So once again, since we are dealing with Nazis here, um, I think it is perfectly reasonable mm-hmm. to to say that credibility is on the side of the skeptics. In other words, the skeptic that the, the, the skeptics would seem to have the edge when it comes to credibility, trustworthiness, etc. A couple of things. The hospital story, when I heard that story, I immediately went to not Syria, I went to Iraq and the story of the Iraqi troops attacking the, uh, the, the maternity hospital and throwing the babies out of the incubators onto the floor and then sending the incubators uh, to wherever they sent them. So I said, wow, I, we, I've heard a similar version of this story from another war. So there must be some playbook narrative that the media keeps turning to. Uh, and I think it's also important just to edify the when we talk about neo-Nazis in Ukraine, what we're talking about are ultra right wing Ukrainian nationalists. And I, I want to underscore nationalists because they are staunchly anti-Russian and they are also staunchly anti-Semitic. And also and also white supremacists. And white su- thank you. <laughs> And as well as anti-gay, they've been known to, to beat up gay rights uh, demonstrators, and they have also attacked and killed Roma people, the, the Roma people, who are otherwise known as gypsies. So Correct. They, they, they offend, they're, 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 a, they're an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as my, as my dad used to say, they hate and they hate good. Um, so, so... I, I wanted to make that point because when you say Nazi, 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 that can people can get kind of tired of that rhetoric or see it as rhetoric. And I wanted to try and unpack that a little bit so the people understand that they're ultra nationalists. And that's why as Ukrainians, they are attacking uh, what we know as ethnic Russians in the east part of the country, which takes me to this. The West, well aware of racism, neo-Nazi and atrocities in Ukraine, but keeps it on the hush-hush. Daniel Lazar. Absolutely correct. That is the great scandal. And we've seen it before as well. 
I mean, the, in, in Afghanistan in the 1980s, the, uh, the, 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 the jihadis who were the recipients, recipients of hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. military aid, I mean, the press portrayed them as freedom fighters. And in fact, in fact uh, Ronald Reagan met with, with, uh, with jihadi representatives of the White House and hailed them as freedom fighters. But they weren't freedom fighters. They were the forerunners of al-Qaeda, the same people who would kill 3,000 people in lower Manhattan on 9-11. And in Syria, the same thing. You know, the, the rebels were portrayed as moderates, as Maldi, Democrats, etc. And we know that they were dominated by al-Qaeda and ISIS. That is the simple fact. And the same thing is happening. Again. And we have bizarre stories now in like the Financial Times, uh, the Times of London, uh, arguing that like, like the, the Azov Brigade has shed its old Nazi past. They're all nice guys now. Um, you know, that, uh, that, they, you know that, that that's all behind them. They have re- they've reinvented themselves as moderates. This is complete nonsense. They, they, are, they, are, they are unreconstructed fascists. Uh, and the and the, the cover up is a giant scandal. Daniel Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And I look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. I'm back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Conflicts in Preeti Patel's power over Assange. You can find this in Consortium News. Preeti Patel, who will soon decide whether to extradite the WikiLeaks publisher, has links to a group that has attacked Assange in the media for a decade. How concerned should we be about this conflict? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you very much, Wilmer. It's good to be back. So Preeti Patel sat on the Henry Jackson Society's Advisory Council from around 2013 to 2016. Actual dates are unclear. She's received funds from the Henry Jackson Society, was paid uh, 2,500 pounds by the group to visit Washington in March of 2013 to attend a quote-unquote security program in the U.S. Congress. Uh, She became a member of parliament in 2010, was appointed home secretary in 2019, and she also hosted the Henry Jackson Society's event in parliament soon after she returned from Washington. Uh, How concerned should people be with her ties to the Henry Jackson Society? What is it and why is this cause for concern? 
Well, any time you have uh, a a group of powerful individuals who have a, an organization that's based on nothing more than the advancement of their own personal agendas as they see fit, you you want to have an eye on that and the people in government that either uh, have partnered with it or come out of it uh, as a member. Uh, in this specific case, with Julian Assange, that. Treaty Patel is one in a series of we have a closet full of conflicts of interest. I recall that the judge that that oversaw the whole division uh, had both a husband and a son that were mentioned in WikiLeaks material. Uh, there, uh, Kier Starmer, while uh, while Treaty Patel wa- was running around uh, with the society folks. Uh, Kier Starmer was at the Crown Prosecutorial Service arranging for a number of different setups for Julian Assange. In 2019, we saw the, it almost, uh, not all, but several key members in uh, decision-making roles in UK leadership be, uh, be elected to or put into those positions of power who directly come from uh, the the earlier days of the war on WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Uh, uh, whether or not that's related is, is speculative, uh, but they have certainly all managed to get exactly what they wanted out of the Assange situation yeah, as, you know, related to their positions. Is there a uh, large cry for recusal here? And it sounds... Uh, Im- Eerily reminiscent, it reminds me an awful lot of what is now developing a call for recusal of Clarence Thomas in the U.S. as his wife Jenny has been tied to extreme right politics uh, as a lobbyist. And she tweet she's found now to have tweeted President Trump directly during the January 6th insurrection. Uh, and so it sounds, you know, uh, in, in many instances you have uh, right-wing politicians that claim to be holier than thou and want to accuse those on the left of all all types of, of heinous actions. But then when they find themselves with the finger in the cookie jar, uh, all of a sudden there's no need for concern, there's no need for recusal because they're above reproach. Well, I mean, we're talking about the same government that is currently going through the uh, uh, well, what the party gate, the backlash from that, where they told everybody, you know, you have to lock down. You had there's a, a specific ritual that you have to do before you leave the house. You have to. You, there's a number of things, places you can't do and go. Meanwhile, we're going to get hammered uh, at, at a Christmas party and then get caught for it. So th- this is a, a very, very, I don't know, long-standing tradition of do as we say, not as we do. Uh, conflicts of interest, Wilmer, are are for people who you know are obviously uh, suspect, like like me and like you and like Julian Assange. But if you have been elevated to a position of power in the United Kingdom, you of course only got there because you're beyond reproach. Anything otherwise is a suggestion of the utmost impropriety. This Henry Jackson Society is also very close to the U.S. CIA. Former Director James Woolsey. He's been a patron since 2006. Uh, it hosted three other ex-director, CIA directors in London since 2014. So as we look at uh, the ties 
uh, a lot of people have been looking at this situation with Julian Assange and, and trying to find the links, the direct links between the British government and the United States government above and beyond the information that was released. And when we now start to see these ties to the CIA, that should give people really uh, cause for pause. Well, I agree. I agree. It should. Uh, this is also, again, the same case where we found out ahead of the, the witness testimony back in 2020 that uh, not only had the CIA been violating Julian Assange's lawyer-client confidentiality in the U.S. Embassy, they had, in fact, hired the security firm who was guarding the embassy to work for them at the same time, you know, a, a dual revenue stream. Um, we found out that uh, this was arranged through one of Donald Trump's largest donors, Sheldon Adelson, through one of his casinos and head of security, uh, who also had ties to both the CIA and the Mossad. Uh, so the, the depths at which intelligence has gone to undermine and get rid of both Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, more or less boundless, certainly legally unprecedented, uh, they, they, because they have to just make it up as they go. Um, and, and I don't know if it has a rival, uh, certainly not in modern history. Not only uh, are there ties to the CIA, but uh, you've got you've got David David Petraeus, you've got Michael Hayden, you've also have Mike Pompeo, former CIA director. I mean the 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 tentacles into the investigatory element of the United States is undeniable here, and the clearer this becomes. Going back to my last point, the clearer the relationship and the concern of the United States government comes in terms of what the information that was released and the egg that was found on the faces of a lot of these people that are tied to this society. Well, yes. And again, we, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be at such a, an unprecedented propaganda war as we are right now with what's going on in Ukraine, and Russia, and all of that. We wouldn't be seeing uh, the open pleas from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton to hacking groups like Anonymous, where she was calling them non-governmental support and giving them a target list on Morning Joe if Vault 7 hadn't have been released, uh, if the CIA's hacking tool suite had not been exposed. There have been a number of operations that have had Vault 7-esque you, you know, uh, fingerprints mm -hmm. all over them over the last number of years. But what we haven't had, Wilmer, is a vocal, fully operational Julian Assange and WikiLeaks to stand up and say, hey, look, we showed you how they operated. We, we gave it to you in their own words from their own manuals. Please take a look for yourself. We, we've seen uh, the media capture not only further consolidate among the corporate press, but in the quote-unquote independent media as well, too. Uh, and the ramping up of massive censorship for channels like RT and Sputnik, based solely off of where they, you know, the origin of where they broadcast from. In fact, in terms of censorship, 
there is a, a piece in the World Socialist website, Stop Censoring the Opponents of War. On Saturday, Facebook deleted a video posted by the Socialist Equality Party of Germany opposing the German government's participation in the U.S.-led NATO proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. The video titled No Third World War Against the War in Ukraine, NATO Aggression and German Rearmament places the conflict in Ukraine in its historical and political context. It was viewed by 20,000 people before being removed. There is an all-out attempt to eliminate any counter-narrative, no matter how historically based it is, uh, to this proxy war in Ukraine. I I truly thought that the the propaganda campaign over the last couple of years— uh, and certainly the the both Russiagate and QAnon nonsense. I like I thought those were were remarkable and, and impressive in terms of scale and uh, uh, I guess fluidity <laughs> mm-hmm. would be the the marketing way to put that. Uh-huh. Um, this is this is quite like something I have never seen. And they have they when I say they, I mean, uh, the U.S. government and uh, they referred to the five eyes, the information sharing network between the former British colonies and the U.K. Uh, that's referred to in the consortium news article that we've been discussing. Um, <clears throat> uh, they have been uh, brazenly, openly saying, look, if you say things that we don't like, not that aren't not that, that they aren't factually inaccurate, well. The, the 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 argument has been made uh facts may certain facts may be harmful <laughs> we the arbiters of what reality is supposed to look like according to us have determined which facts are harmful uh, therefore we're going to remove these harmful facts from the western consciousness uh, and have openly stated this that's pretty bold my friend and that's where we're at and what's amazing to me when you try to engage folks in dialogue and you, for example, some of the let's just I'll just use one example of the uh, the story of the Russia bombing the maternity hospital in Ukraine. And you say to some and so somebody will say, look, look at how evil and look at what they've done. And then you say to somebody, well, haven't you heard this story before? If you reflect back to the Iraq war. And the story of the uh, Rocky soldiers with the babies and the incubators and throwing the babies on the floor. Haven't you heard this before? Do you see a pattern here? And, man, folks will blanket you just totally befuddled and confused. And you can see the churning in their heads does not compute, does not compute, because you're giving them a counter narrative based by data. And they just can't process it because the dominant narrative is so prevalent they just can't compute it well it's become you know is it make the lie big and repeat it often enough and it becomes the truth and in light of the fact that you can go wilmer right now on wikipedia and everybody listening can do this too uh go right now to, to wikipedia and type in that young woman's name who told the the incubator baby story um naraya i can't remember her last name mm-hmm. um 
but you type in her name and what pops up is a specific type of propaganda that was given its own name after the incubator baby's debacle and it's called atrocity propaganda mm. and this is a a not just phenomenon but tactic a weaponized propaganda tactic that was given its own name based on the egregiousness of the of the lie <laughs> and, and yet we can say, oh, look, a hospital was bombed in uh, Mariupol, and uh, the, the, the babies. And look, there's a brightly colored blanket that this woman is draped on on a right. makeshift stretcher. Right. You know, it's all it hits all of the same beats. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Wilmer, thank you so much. You have a great day. You too, Steve. Hey, folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's an interesting piece in Black Agenda Report entitled Working Paper, The Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement, The Threat of a Communist Nationalist Alliance Against the West, 1958. Declassified papers from NATO's archives detail a comprehensive counter-revolutionary strategy against decolonization, including the active sabotaging of Afro-Asian solidarity and the what's called spirit of Bandung. What's the historic relevance of this and how is it applicable to what we're seeing today? For insight, we turn to our next guests. We're joined by an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of Black Agenda Report, Dr. Jamima Pierre. As always, Dr. Pierre, welcome back. Dr. Leon, thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by an associate professor of African-American studies and history at the University of California, Los Angeles, and author of the book, Bankers and Empire, How Wall Street Colonized the Caribbean, Dr. Peter James Hudson. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on. And may I also say that uh, both of you all are the authors of this piece. You write the North Atlantic, Dr. Pierre, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, organized in 1949 to provide for collective military defense of the United States and its white Western allies against the Soviet Union and the perceived threat of global communism. You write for NATO, the Sino-Soviet's influence on the third world appears to be that of accelerating the destruction of the West by depriving it of the markets and resources of raw materials in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, on which it is believed to depend for survival. This follows the racist and imperialistic logic, to me, of to be pro-me must mean that they're anti-you. Because you took this quote, this was a quote from the NATO papers, 
about depriving the destruction of the West, depriving of, of its markets. I never knew that any of these colonized countries were trying to deprive the West of anything. I always saw them as just trying to get fair market value for the resources and keep control of the resources in their country. Dr. Jamima Pierre. Well, I, I think you're right. You know, part is, you're absolutely right. What's fascinating about this document that we found this um, um, original document from NATO, is how conniving they are and how clear and specific they are about what their goal is, right? So the goal, they're afraid, and this is what the West is afraid of, and we need to know this for today. They said they, if they don't have access to markets and resources, the, the West will be destroyed. <laughs> so that tells you from the very beginning what they're standing at. And, and also, I think before we even go on to the document, we have to remember the, um, the history of NATO. NATO is this imperialist uh, um, uh, organization. When it was set up, it was set up when African, most African countries were still colonial subjects. In fact, you know, Amakal Cabral, the freedom fighter um, against Portugal, Portuguese um, um, imperialism, colonization of the African continent calls NATO a rotten appendage of imperialism because because without NATO, Portugal would actually not be able to launch three colonial wars in Africa. It would not be able, the other countries would not be able to, to control African resources. And so it's important to, to, to really lay out how NATO itself is this really, um, um, this in, institution that is set up to maintain uh, white Western global hegemony. Now, this document was, was fascinating, and, and, I, and I have to turn it over to, uh, to Dr. Hudson to really talk more about it, because we actually, he, he started doing the digging on NATO. Their archives are, are wide open. And the fact that people always call us conspiracy theorists when you say the West is against Afro-Asian solidarity is really belied by this document, which actually document that they were, they all got together, all the NATO states got together to figure out how to stop the rest of the globe, of the rest of the world from working together to really maintain their own sovereignty and, 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 and having access to their own resources. And Dr. Hudson, speak to that. And in listening to Dr. Pierre talk about NATO saying they needed access, again, it's not access, it's control and domination. Because my understanding and my research and reading has always been uh, nobody was trying to deprive anybody of anything. It was a matter of, again, fair market value and being able to control the resources and also speak to NATO has always been portrayed as this military defensive organization, almost benign, that NATO will only rear its head when a NATO country is attacked. But in reality, that's not what NATO was really founded to do. No, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think in the first instance, um, when we're talking talk about the question of, of de- depriving people of resources, as as has been pointed out, we have to understand that that NATO is not a benign organization, that that it was set up to uh, as a military force that is about protecting existing empires, but also expanding colonial and, and neo-colonial markets, I would argue. And I think that this is what, what we see in, in this, this document. Um, and what we have to understand that when we, when we talk about Afro-Asian solidarity, when we talk about decolonization, we're talking about 
a massive, uh, potentially a massive rupture to the global system of capitalism that that the U.S. is trying to spread after the the Second World War, especially, and and NATO is is uh, is is designed, I think, to to help expand and protect those markets, um, and to maintain make sure that uh, the Soviets, the Chinese. African um, uh, peoples and and other Asian peoples and Arab peoples uh, are not able to build their own alliances, not able to control their own own resources. And this this document, um, I think, uh, speaks speaks to that and speaks to to the specific strategies um, that they're going to put in place to undermine uh, these potential alliances that would disrupt uh, uh, Western capitalism. Dr. Beer, the spirit of Bandung, can you talk, speak to that, please? What is, what is that and why is it relevant? Right. So ben, the Bandung conference, the spirit of Bandung is, is important because part of it is this is right at the beginning of the Cold War where, you know, the, the, the prime minister, um, the Indonesian prime minister decided that as you had the beginning of the Cold War, the, the developing the countries that were coming out of co- colonization that were decolonizing needed to have um, a, a, a position that was that would not align with either side of these rising blocks right with the, the Cold War which began with the US which saw itself in competition with China and Russia at the time and so what it did was really invite um, the, the the prime ministers in Asia wanted to play um, a put together a gathering in, in Bandung in Indonesia to, to really have a conference of all the formerly colonized nations of African and Asian countries. And there were, there were six countries that, uh, uh, there are 29 countries that, that, that represented the Bandung conference. And out of them were six African countries. Um, and three of those were actually not yet independent, I have to say this. And so the whole point of the Bandung conference was to clearly, clearly have these groups chart a course of nationalism that was not tied, um, that did not have to take a role, that was non-aligned, right, which, be, which would become the non-aligned movement, where they did not align with the first or the second world, and they wanted to take their own independent course. The U.S., of course, was completely against this non-aligned um, position because they wanted, um, they wanted these developing nations to be tied to Western capitalism, and they wanted to move them away from um, communism, socialism, and, and the Eastern world. And so the Bandung Conference was really this, you know, initial organizing, um, uh, this, this initial, the spirit of organizing that did not take sides, that wanted to chart its own independent path, that wanted to have the say in how it would develop without the forceful pressures from, from the West or even the East. But and, but it, it was really a sign to like chart a new world order that was that was outside of the context of Western imperialism, and that was actually really um, dangerous. I think the U.S. and the West saw that as a dangerous move because they wanted full control. Doctor Hudson, big issue relating to the sabotaging of Afro-Asian solidarity. Fast forwarding because of time to where we are now and looking at the uh, attacks that the United States particularly is directing towards China. And we know through the Belt and Road Initiative, through the win-win strategies of uh, China's diplomacy, that China has made incredible inroads into African countries and that we see all of what you all were writing about and highlighting from NATO in 1958 is still manifesting itself today. 
I, well, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, I, I don't think we need we should um, overstate the influence of, of China in Africa, because if we can look at um, what's been happening in Mali and other uh, French Franco-African uh, countries, we realize that the French have been major players in Africa. We realize that the U.S. is still a major player in Africa. But I think to your point, what we're seeing and what we're seeing right now uh, with with the um, the response to the sanctions on the Russian Federation right now is the kind of realignment globally that uh, that the authors of this document feared 50 years or 60 years ago or 70 years ago almost. And so with um, I, it, it's doubtful that uh, the Chinese currency will become the kind of uh, global trade currency of uh, uh, that the dollar was or, or the pound sterling was. Um, but we have to consider that um, the Chinese volume of trade, Chinese uh, manufacturing, uh, Chinese loans will play an increasing role um, in in Africa, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, and and elsewhere. And I think we're we're going through a, a moment of profound uh, instability. If you read the Financial Times, um, every author in the Financial Times right now is talking about the end of globalization, the rise of of, of new uh, a new currency order, and the realignment of of trading blocks. So in many ways. Um, what the, the current crisis in, in the Ukraine um, is, is, is opening up uh, a path in the world where we don't know what's going to be at the end of it, um, but it won't represent the hegemony of the dollar in the United States. Dr. Pierre, we have just about three minutes, unfortunately, for this segment. Part of your, y'all's piece, you talk about psych- a psychological assessment and analysis that was done of the Soviet Union, Afro-Asian political, economic, and cultural strategies, and that there were countermeasures proposed and implemented, some of them resulting in the FBI's uh, COINTELPRO program. If you could speak to that quickly, please. Right. Uh, well, I don't know if they, they, they resulted um, directly in the COINTELPRO program, but it actually reminds us of, of, okay. of COINTELPRO. It actually makes COINTELPRO look like child's play, because what they did was, it, it, this was a very racist document. And I have to say, if you read it, 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 it's nakedly racist terms, right? It talks about African-Asian nationalists being, you know, hypersensitive and resentful and frustrated by the whites. They were emotional and irrational. That's what that's what they were saying. But the other thing, what they saw, and you realize they studied um, um, uh, Russia uh, uh, and the Soviet Union carefully, because what they did was basically, you know, what what the Russians and and the Chinese did, Russia in particular, the Soviet Union did, was really have all these cultural events, creating all these. you know, learning languages of, of, of all these people have these cultural centers, um, studies about the, 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 the Africa and Asia. Well, what they realized, they, they decided to use these similar tactics. So then they used similar tactics of, uh, of the Russians who were using this to actually learn about these countries that are coming out of colonialism. They then used these same things by creating Western schools, cultural centers, newspapers, if you think about Voice of America, um, having academic conferences, creating whole fields of study um, um, uh, in order to actually go against, to be anti-communist, right, and to go against the Soviet Union in China and create all these um, damning disinformation, right, against political leaders and so on. And so what we actually see is that a lot of the psychological warfare and propaganda warfare work. Right. So if you look at like, you know, uh, uh, undergraduate colleges and development studies, area studies, they're all 
pro-capitalist, mm-hmm. anti-communist, anti-Russia. So it was a very successful mm-hmm. psychological problem, which you actually see now actually hopefully dismantled you know, with the way that, that, you know, the sanctions against the Russian Federation are coming back to haunt the West. Because all this work that they did in the cultural, political, economic, and um, in the field to, to really push Africans and Asians away from each other and away from China and Russia, Hopefully, we think, you know, even though it was successful up until this moment, hopefully with this new realignment, mm-hmm. it will be finally dismantled. Dr. Jamima Pierre, Dr. Peter James Hudson, authors of the Afro-Asian Solidarity Movement, The Threat of a Communist Nationalist Alliance Against the West, 1958. Phenomenal piece you find at a Black Agenda Report. Uh, really worth It'll give you great insight into today and why we are where we are. Thank you both so much. Look forward to having you all back. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out. 